0: study center in uh, Eugene, Oregon, uh, Christian Alternatives, a uh, biblical study center associated with University of Oregon. And uh, they were just recently given a fraternity house on the campus and moved from uh, an old, decrepit uh, building that they'd been in for some time. And I just got his prayer letter this past week, and his prayer was that uh, they would never cease to be a disorganized, funky little study center when they have a a building with a sign out front. And I just laughed out loud when I read it because he put in words what I've been thinking for the last couple of months. I hope when we get a building and uh, we get uh, at least the semblance of more organization that we will never cease to have the kind of informality and warmth and expression of love that that we have here in this body. Incidentally, uh, our target date for moving in is August the 22nd which means that we have about four more weeks after this week in this, uh, in this building. So uh, we can just thank the Lord for putting all the pieces together for us. Would you turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 4. I read a parody this past week on Onward Christian Soldiers. It goes, uh, Like a mighty turtle moves the church of God. Brethren, we are treading where we've always trod, uh, we are all uh, divided, many bodies, we, strong in truth and doctrine, weak in charity. And uh, I, like you, was amused when I read it, but really it's, uh, it's too true to be funny. What a, what a travesty the uh, church of Jesus Christ is today on Jesus' original intent. There's a description, a sort of cameo description of the early church in Acts 4.32 and following. I'd like to read it uh, to you. In the congregation or the community of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The uh, and in that clause could very well be translated indeed. In fact, that's. That would be a better translation. This is a description not only of the power that rested upon the apostles, but Luke's point is that indeed great grace resided upon them all, that is, all of of God's people. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. Now there are a number of... uh, of elements in that in that paragraph, in some repetition, but there are really only two important things, two characteristics of the early church. Number one, they loved each other fiercely. And they were loyal to each other. They uh, sold their property, and they gave to those that were in need, so that it could be honestly said there was not one needy, not one impoverished person among them. And this wasn't uh, demanded of the early church; it was purely voluntary. They didn't even have to give all the proceeds of the sale of their property, but uh, they did not love merely in word; they loved in deed. As James puts it, they they did not merely say, "Go and be warmed and filled." They did something about the needs of the people around them. The second thing we note is that uh, they witnessed to the outside world powerfully. Uh, and as I indicated, it was not merely the apostles who gave witness to the uh, resurrection, but it was all of the congregations we saw last week. As a result of the apostles' defense of the gospel, they gathered and prayed that God would continue to advance the, uh, the course of the church, and they went out of that upper room filled with the Spirit and gave witness to Christ throughout the whole city of, of Jerusalem. So they had a, an enormous impact upon their uh, upon their society, their community. So these are the two elements that are, that are important. They loved each other, and they witnessed to those on the outside. And it would seem to me, based upon Luke's wording in this passage, that one was dependent upon the other. If you notice uh, verse 34, again it begins with the conjunction for, which introduces an explanation in Luke's point, is that, because they took care of their own, they were able to witness to the world outside with real authority. Last uh, Wednesday morning, Malcolm Anderson uh, happened to be sitting at the table where I was, and we were talking about this uh, very incident, and Malcolm asked the question, and it's a good question. Why aren't we doing this today? Given the uh, high incident of unemployment and are in the downturn in the economy, and the large number of people in our assembly who are without work, like Randy and, and others, is it really right for any of the rest of us to have a surplus when people in our midst are needy? Now, if people are going hungry because they're not working, that's a different thing if they don't want to work. Scripture says, "If if a man will not work, neither should he eat. And uh, if we are needy because of indolence, then the church ought not to support that, that sort of uh, indifference to, uh, to God's will. But there are, there are many, many people among us who are genuinely hurting, genuinely hurting. And we need to do something about it. We can't sit by idly and let people go in need because not only are the needy uh, at stake, but our entire witness to the community is at stake because, as Luke points out, one de- is determined by the other, is dependent upon the other. And we do have a, a vehicle set up for distributing funds. It's very similar to the sort of uh, situation that existed in the early church. People bought, uh, sold their property and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostle's fee and they made the distribution. And we do have a fellowship fund that is administrated by the elders and. The purpose of that fund is to make money available to people that have, have needs. So um, I would just say as a way of, of very practically applying these, this, this passage, if you have a surplus, there's a need that is available, or there is a, a fund that is available to you through which you can give to meet the needs of those in our in our community, in our assembly, that are impoverished. Now what Luke does in 32 through 35 is state the principle in a general way or the practice of the early church generally, and then he follows up with two specific concrete illustrations. The first is in verses 36 and 37 where you have the positive example of Barnabas, and in chapter 5, 1 through 11, you have the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. Let me read 36 and 37. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, or a field, a farm actually, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you have first a positive example of this, uh, of this desire to meet the needs of, of impoverished uh, believers in the person of Barnabas. And he's described here as a Levite, and we might ask the question, what is a Levite doing uh, possessing a field? Because, as you know from the Old Testament, the Levites were taken care of by, uh, by the rest of the uh, tribes, the rest of the Israelites. Uh, they were not permitted to hold property. But apparently that law had fallen into disuse. Uh, certainly by this time it was not applied. So there was, not, uh, there was nothing wrong in Barnabas owning a piece of property. Furthermore, he's described as a, a Cypriot, someone from the island of, of Cyprus. And if this farm was on the island of Cyprus, it would be like possessing a city block in the middle of downhill, downtown Manhattan. Uh, this was a, an expensive piece of property. Land was at a premium on the, the island of Cyprus. So this was quite a large gift that Barnabas brought. And it's indicative of the kind of man that he was. His name was Joseph, as we recall, that was his given name, but he was nicknamed Barnabas, which is an Aramaic term that means a son of encouragement, one characterized by encouragement. This son of phrase is a, is an idiom for one who possesses the characteristic of the thing named. So Barnabas was someone who was always encouraging people. Barnabas is one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. We'll see him turning up from time to time throughout the book of Acts. He's a good illustration of the principle that uh, you can play second fiddle and have a, a tremendous impact upon your world. He wasn't, a, he wasn't up front a great deal. He tended to be behind the scenes, but he's the man who made Paul the man that he was and Mark the man that he became, and, and he's always giving help wherever help is needed. Uh, there's a sign on Franklin Lumber Company. I don't know if you saw it as you were making your way to, uh, to the building this morning. And it says something about uh, our never remembering those that are in second place, and that may be true. But God remembers the saints that play second fiddle, that are behind the scenes. And Barnabas is one of those who, who isn't up front a great deal, but uh, he has an enormous influence on those around him because he was always giving encouragement. And that was the characteristic of the man. And here the encouragement takes the form of, of a gift. He sells a piece of land, probably an entire farm, and he brings the entire proceeds of that farm, and he lays it at the apostles' feet so they can distribute it to the needy saints in, in Jerusalem. And uh, though it's not apparent from our English translations, it's very clear from Luke's report that he gave all of it. Now, now, bear in mind, he was not required to give any of it. He wasn't coerced, but he did it because he wanted to encourage the saints in in Jerusalem, Now, that's the positive example given here of the practice that's stated uh, generally. Now, the negative example is chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own, and after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard. And the young men arose and covered him up, and and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price?' And she said, "'Yes, that was the price.' Then Peter said to her, "'Why is it that you have agreed together "'to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test?' You presumed upon his patience." Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This might be the appropriate time to remind you of your pledges for the building program. (laughs) No, not not really. <clears throat> some of you are probably thinking, "Whoa, what in the world is going on here? This is exactly what I thought." This is what this is what has happened in my experience in the church, some pastor or some priest has in a very heavy-handed way has, has demanded that that we give and and implied that God would judge us if if we didn't. I have a Friend who was in a church over on the east side of Idaho, and he tells about the time that the uh, elders from this particular church would show up in the spring, and they would actually point out the calves that he was, uh, that the family was to give to the church. They, we want this one and, and that one, and that's the sort of thing that I think people believe is implied by this by this passage. But that's not that's not true at all. Let me try to reconstruct the. Uh, the scene for you. Ananias and Sapphira probably saw Barnabas bring his gift, and they heard the congregation respond, probably with oohs uh, and ahs, when Barnabas brought this enormous amount of money. Barnabas wasn't doing it ostentatiously. He didn't know anything at all about his character. He wasn't trying to curry favor. He just It was a public meeting, and he, like everyone else, brought the money, but there must have been an immediate response to this large gift. And I Anani- started thinking, I would like to have that sort of a position in the church. I'd like to be known as a generous man, a godly man, a righteous person. And so on the way home, as they were driving back to their, their house, I said to Sapphira, you know, we've got that uh, condominium up on Lake Jennereth, and uh, the thing is, uh, is a financial drain anyway. Let's, uh, let's sell it. And so they called up uh, Cohen, Greenberg, and uh, Watkins, the local uh, real estate agency, and, and put the condominium on the market. And some wealthy Roman bought it as a vacation home. And they were able to make about $50,000 on the sale. And uh, they decided, as they were driving back from uh, depositing the money in the bank, that they would give half, which was all right. In fact, they didn't have to give anything. And uh, they didn't have to give it all. But they decided that they would give half and appear to give it all. They could, by stating the thing in a certain way, give the impression that they had given all the money and then everyone would ooh and ah as they had over Barnabas and and his gift. And so they brought the $25,000 to the uh, apostles and put it at their feet. The apostles sat as they taught And so they brought the money and gave it to uh, Peter. And everyone in the congregation went ooh and ah, except Peter. Peter apparently received direct revelation as an apostle. they, They had that sort of access to truth, and it was revealed to Peter that Ananias was lying. And Peter says a very interesting thing to Ananias. He says, Satan has moved you to do this. Peter sees that it's an attack upon the unity and integrity and health of the church. That Satan is, is assaulting the church, not only from the outside, as we saw last week, through uh, through the religious establishment, but now he was beginning to a- attack internally through members of the body of Christ. And uh, Peter notes that. He says, Satan has moved your heart to lie to God. And the man expired. He, he fell to the ground and died and and they carried him out. Now, we mustn't think of these men like automatons who, who just stand up and, and take him out and bury him. I'm sure Peter had to call some strong young men forward, and, and they picked him up, and they were all in a state of shock, I'm sure. And, and the man was taken out and buried, which was the custom in those days. They, they couldn't delay burial. Sapphira had stayed home to put the finishing touches on dinner, and she came to the second service. And, and uh, she was completely oblivious to the whole thing. And Peter says to her, "Did did you agree to sell the piece of property for such and such a price?" Peter was giving her an opportunity to repent. If she had broken down at that point and said, "No, we lied," I believe she would have been spared. But uh, she was in this thing herself and uh, committed to it, and so she lied. She said, "Yes, we sold it for twenty-five thousand dollars," and she dropped over dead. And in what may be the understatement of the year, Luke says great fear came upon the church. <laughs> I don't know how I would react to something like that. It was, I, I think I would get honest. Now, the question is, what was so wrong about what they did? After all, this, this sort of thing has happened from time to time. People have lied. Why such immediate and harsh judgment? Well, it's because of the nature of their sin. Their sin was not that they didn't give everything or that they they didn't give it all. It's that they were hypocrites. They were pretending. They were faking, play-acting, playing Christian, playing church. And that's what brought this immediate reaction of judgment. Now, all of us from time to time pretend. You know, you can remember when you were a, a kid how you used to make believe and pretend and play I was talking to Terry Pepe last Wednesday and he told me that Rebecca their little, little girl has an imaginary playmate by the name of Ashley who follows her everywhere does everything with her the other day Nancy tried to put uh, Rebecca in bed and she wouldn't get in bed because Ashley was sleeping in her bed and it's very very real to her but of course she's just she's just pretending there's nothing wrong with that Uh, My oldest son, Randy, used to play soldiers. Now, he is one, but back then he used to play soldier. And and he'd buy these big bags of plastic soldiers, and he'd have thousands of soldiers all over the backyard. I'd try to mow the yard, and they'd cut their heads off. And and I can still remember him out there making (coughs) sounds like that and and, uh, carrying on warfare in the backyard. He, He was pretending. And I can remember back in high school standing in front of the mirror by the hour in my baseball uniform, uniform being sure that my pants were bloused the right way and I'd have my mother sew uh, a strip into my stirrup so the socks would be pulled up just right because I wanted to look like a baseball player whether I was or not. Get the hat peaked just the right way and roll the bill so that you looked like uh, Willie Mays or whoever back in those days, Bob Feller. and see how far back I go. And... Uh, you know, we, we like to pretend. Now, that, that, that's somewhat harmless and certainly very harmless when you're a child, but when you become an adult and you keep on pretending, it's a very serious thing. Hypocrisy is a very serious sin. I have a friend who uh, was a missionary in Appalachia for years, and uh, when he rented the house that they moved into, there was, he noticed there was a flagpole in the front yard, and most of the people up and down the street had flagpoles, and they would fly flags, American flags, on appropriate occasions. And he wanted to fit into the community, and he and he was a patriot, so he bought a flag, and, and uh, he ran it up the flagpole. And one day uh, he forgot it. It grew dark, and he went outside, and in haste pulled it down. And in his in hurrying, he accidentally stepped on the edge of the flag and muddied it. And he was standing in his front yard, dusting it off, and his neighbor came running over from next door. and and uh, read him the riot act, just uh, gave him a, a lesson in, in uh, honor and care for the flag and how to fold it, and, and was quite upset because he had desecrated the flag, and John was just uh, appalled because he really wanted to fit into the community and felt that he'd cut himself off from his, from his neighbor. A couple days later, the federal marshals came and handcuffed his neighbor and put him in the back seat of the car and took him off because he had a still in his backyard. And he was producing moonshine whiskey and, and didn't have to pay the federal taxes. He was able to sell it. And he was defrauding his government. Now, that's hypocrisy, see? You fly the flag, you look good on the outside, but uh, there's something wrong inside. Now, that, that's what concerned Peter and the leaders of the early church. Hypocrisy is a serious, serious sin. It's a very serious matter. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's one of Satan's uh, favorite ways of intruding into the church and destroying the life of a body. He's, he's the enemy. He's a liar, and he's a, he's a murderer, as Jesus put it. He deceives, and he destroys. And he'll destroy anybody through hypocrisy. We, in, in our thinking, we have a, an order of magnitude of sin. All of us do. On a scale of 1 to 10... Uh, we would probably put sexual sins right up there at the very top, nine or ten. And adultery and fornication and homosexuality, those are our sins, and they are serious sins. But as I read the New Testament, I don't find that sexual sins, in God's estimate, are at the top of the list. They're sins, but they're not at the top. Paul says the thing that's so wrong about homosexuality is that uh, it's a—it's the most inhumane, the most undignified thing you can do to your body. That's his point in, in Romans 1, not that it's the worst possible sin. It isn't. It isn't. The worst sins are pride, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy. And, and there are times in history when God has underscored the magnitude of these sins, and I think that's what he's doing here. I'm sure there were people who were hypocritical from this point on in the early church, but they didn't drop dead. God was simply trying to make a point, trying to underscore the fact that this, above all else, will destroy the church. And uh, if we don't judge it in ourselves, then God will have to judge it. That's his point. There's another story. It's very similar in the Old Testament, and I think Luke had this story in mind when he, as he tells this account of the early church, the uh, phrase in 5.1 that's translated in my Bible, kept back, is the same phrase that's used in Joshua 7.1 of Achan in the Greek translations of the Old Testament. Achan kept back some of the devoted things. This is the story. Achan was uh, one of the members of the army that invaded and conquered Jericho. And the army was told before they went in, don't touch anything that belongs to the Canaanites. And there was a good reason for that because most of these things were connected somehow with their cultic worship and God wanted to meet their needs. He didn't want them to uh, get, get involved with idolatry and the materialism of the, of the Canaanites. But Achan disobeyed that ban and, and he just kept a few things, a, a, a garment to cover himself at night and a few pieces of silver and a little gold dagger. And he dug in the ground under his tent and he hid those things and he just went on as though everything was fine. And shortly afterward, they attacked the little city of Ai. Uh, the word Ai in Hebrew means ruin. And apparently, there wasn't even a city there, it was just a tell, just, just the ruins of, an, of ancient cities. And a bunch of uh, Canaanites squatting on top of that hill in tents. And Joshua said, Oh, it's nothing to that. Let's just send a few men. So they sent 3,000 against the Aiites. And they were disastrously defeated. Thirty-six people lost their lives. That's the only reported loss of life in the entire campaign in, in Canaan. And Joshua inquired of the Lord, what, what, what happened here? And the Lord revealed that Achan had hidden away these, these goods, the things under the ban in his tent. And they took Achan out and they stoned him and they burned all of his possessions. And we say, my, that's awfully harsh. No. No, it's just God's way of saying again that hypocrisy, if we hide things away, it will destroy the people of God. It's a very, very serious thing. You know, every week in our country, people come to church and they sit just as you're sitting and they're wearing the appropriate clothing for church on Sunday mornings. And they carry the prescribed translation, whatever it is, for that particular group. And they sing hymns. And uh, they teach Sunday school classes. And they pray. And they tithe. And they're involved in leadership. And then during the week, they go on the road and they read pornography. And they go to X rated movies. And um, they turn out inferior products that they sell for exorbitant prices. And they bill people for work not done. And they lie and they cheat on their wives. And they're guilty of jealousy and bitterness and an unforgiving spirit and resentment and racism and bigotry. But they cover it over. And it destroys the church. There's nothing that will destroy the church quicker than hypocrisy. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he knew what he was talking about. Hypocrisy is just like leaven. When introduced into the mass, it will spread until it permeates the whole thing. It affects the whole body, and that's why it's so serious. That's why we can't permit it in ourselves can't do it. I have a friend, one of my dearest friends in seminary, who was fired from his church because he taught from the Revised Standard Version. This was back before we had some of the translations that we have today, and the only decent translation, though there are some problems in it, there's no question about it, was the RSV, and his concern was to use a a translation of Scripture that was readable and understandable for people coming in from the world who were finding finding the Lord as a result of the, the ministry of this, of this church. Most people have a hard time with the King James. It reminds them of a Shakespeare course they took in, in college that they made a D in. And uh, unless you read Elizabethan literature all the time, the King James is a little difficult to read. And so he wanted to introduce a more up-to-date translation. They accused him of being liberal because he was reading from a translation that was put together by liberals which is true, though it tends to be very objective, with some exceptions, and they fired him. And uh, it was discovered some months later that the man who led the assault upon him was guilty of a, of a serious crime, and he was put in jail. Uh, I just, uh, not too long ago, got a call from a friend of mine who told me of a a man in his church who had attacked him on a number of occasions because of certain things that he had done or tried to do, and uh, only recently they discovered that this man was living in incest with his own daughter. Now, that's the sort of thing that Peter is concerned about, that kind of hypocrisy. We must do something about it. We must not permit it in ourselves or in others. Now, the answer is not to start doing things right and continue to cover over. I think that's that's the way a lot of people approach their hypocrisy. And by the way, all of us are, are hypocrites to a certain extent. Don't look so pious. I'm right there with you. Well, what are we going to do? How are we going to change? Well, it's not to try to change ourselves internally and then continue to present a good front. Because we will never be in this world what we know we should be. There will always be some measure of of unrighteousness in us. We're growing. As we've said over and over again, God doesn't look for perfection. He looks for progress. And what He he looks for primarily is the attitude of the heart. Do I want to grow? Do I want to be a righteous man or woman? Am I hungering and thirsting after righteousness? That's what, what really matters. And that kind of person, God will pour Himself into and give all of His resources to equip that individual for life. So we'll, we'll all fail to, to some extent. The answer is to get honest and to be transparent and stop faking it. Stop trying to be something we're not. We, we, we want to appear loving when inside we're really selfish and we know it. We don't want to give anything away. We want to appear strong when really inside we're, we're weak and we know it. We want to appear generous but we want some return from our generosity. We want to appear pure, but we're struggling inwardly with sexual fantasies and and things of this nature. And so we cover up. We we raise a facade. We paste a smile on our face. And uh, it's terribly damaging to us and to others. The only way to get rid of hypocrisy is to stop being a hypocrite. Just be honest about your sin and what you're like and what I'm like. We're not fooling anybody anyway, not over the long run. That's what Peter was trained to do with with this dear woman, Sapphira. He wanted her to face what she was doing and admit it. If Sapphira had turned to the congregation and said, "I, I lied, I was wrong. I've always been materialistic and acquisitive, and I need to be set free. Will you pray for me? She would have been spared, I really believe. But she tried to cover up. And as long as we cover up sin... There's no healing for it. Let me ask you to turn to one more passage, Luke 12. Where our Lord makes a very interesting statement about hypocrisy. Under these circumstances, Luke 12:1, under these circumstances after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples first that is as a matter of first importance Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Any any time uh, a movement begins to grow, you're going to have people who who are hangers-on, who are hypocrites. They don't really inwardly; they're not committed, just outwardly. And so the Lord is warning the apostles: Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner room shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. God is ruthless in his exposure of our hypocrisy because he knows that's the only way we can be healed. We can cover up and cover up, but after a while God will strip the covering off so that we're seen as we really are. Therefore, we ought to unveil ourselves before God has to. Let's just be real. Because once we get out in the open, then God can do something about our sin. And so can we. We can deal with it. Now, I'm not saying sin isn't serious. It is. But hypocrisy is a far greater problem. Because as long as we're hypocrites, there's no healing for our sin. But when we get it out in the open, then God can do something about it. He can start to deal with the root causes of our disobedience. And it's so, it's so much healthier. The environment is so much healthier. People begin to realize that we're in this thing together. None of us is perfect. I hope you don't think I am. I don't think you are. In fact, I know you're not because I know I'm not. So let's stop kidding ourselves. We're a bunch of sinners anonymous. We ought to be able to stand up and say, I am a sinner and ask for help. And when we do that, There's an environment of support and encouragement. We never lose face. People move in alongside to help us. Henry Brandt tells about the couple who were on their way to dinner with another couple and they were having a fight, shouting at each other as they pulled up to the front uh, door and unbeknownst to them, the people in the house that they were visiting were also having a fight and they were yelling at each other in the kitchen and they came up to the front door and pushed the doorbell and you know what happens. Immediately the fight stops and everybody puts on a smile. And they had a delightful evening together. And as they departed, the one couple got in the car to go home and the other couple went back into the bedroom and they both said exactly the same thing. Why do we have a marriage like those people? (laughs) We had the um, fishers over for dinner a couple of weeks ago and Josh went to the door to greet them and he said, you'll have to sit down and wait. My mom and dad are in the bedroom having a fight. (laughs) So if we, don't, uh, if we don't tell all our parents well, huh? and I'm sure the Fishers realize, I don't know if they fight, <laughs> but uh, at least they know that there are others who struggle and uh, who work hard at their, their marriages as well. So let's uh, just be real and transparent and honest, knowing that we love each other, that God loves us just the way we are, and he's at work to perfect us. Let's don't play games, don't play church, don't play Christian. Just be real. Proverbs 28 says, The man who covers up his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and abandons them will be successful. Let's pray. Father, we, we all of us, are greatly in need of help in this area. We're all guilty of a conspiracy of silence to hide behind our facades and to impress others, to appear to be something that we're not, to look good, even though we know we're not good. Lord, help us in this area. Deliver us from our pride and our sensitivity. Help us to be honest and genuine, forthright. Help us to judge ourselves so we will not be judged. And keep us as a body of believers, honest and transparent and growing learning increasingly how to live in victory over over sin. And make us a, a fellowship of people who who work with one another to that end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.